Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I don't have Michelle or Jimmy here today but I am very, very lucky because we are here once again with Professor Tony Cousins, Shakespeare and Renaissance expert. Hi Tony. Hi, hi. And Tony has kindly agreed to come in so that I can um, ask him a lot of questions about Hamlet today. So thank you very much, Tony. You're welcome. <laughs> so when we talked about King Lear, we talked about how um, King Lear became the kind of play of the 20th century or the play mm. du jour of the 20th century, um, whereas previously Hamlet had been the kind of play that everyone was interested in. So why was everyone interested in Hamlet and why does it have this kind of central kind of role in, in the Shakespeare canon, I suppose? Yeah, that's, that's true. It, it does seem to be the play from which everyone knows one line, right? And Alas, poor Yorick. <laughs> two, to be or not to be. <laughs> Thought I'd go with a you know, deep yeah, cut there. The, yeah. the less obvious yeah. one, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think Hamlet captures people's imaginations in the early 19th century when the Romantic movement, as we call it, was dominating cultural activity in Europe because Hamlet seems like an outsider in conflict with his society, an exile in the world that he's part of, simultaneously in the world and exiled from it, mm -hmm. on the margins of it. So I think that Hamlet could be seen to speak to what people in Europe and England were seeing as a social phenomenon, particularly with the kind of literary figure that we have come to call the Byronic hero, mm. the outsider connected with a society to which he's simultaneously attracted and from which he's also uh, isolated. So I think Hamlet gets to be cast as a hero for the times. Mm. And you can see that from the illustrations to Hamlet that are done by the French artist Delacroix, where Hamlet is seen to be a very romantic figure moving through uh, an alien environment with his friend Horatio. So I think that's, that's part of it, that Hamlet captured the imagination of the Romantic movement in the early 19th century and coupled with that even beyond the survival of the... or the height of the Romantic movement, Hamlet is a characterization that speaks to a lot of people. Mm. They sympathize with his sense of loss, his grief, his anger, the incomprehensibility of what's going on around him. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Hamlet's characterization really does have an impact on people and his five or seven, depending on what you count as a soliloquy, <laughs> soliloquies, uh, really, too, have caught people's imaginations and they have the feeling that they get to know Hamlet. But the truth is that people probably know Hamlet much less well than they imagine they do. For example, if you say to uh, a university class or a school class, how old is Hamlet in the play? They sit for a moment, then they think, and they say, well, he's just back from university, so he must be quite young. And the answer to that is, that's right, because people went to university younger than they do now. So Hamlet, at the start of the play, is just back from university and is therefore quite young. But over the course of the play, he ages in ways that the play doesn't necessarily prepare us for. 
by making them overt. For example, there's a point at which Hamlet says that he's somewhere in his early mid-30s, so that even though we don't see Hamlet ageing, nonetheless Hamlet goes through the process of ageing from his mid-late teens through to his early mid-30s across the course of the play. So the play isn't by any means as obvious when it comes to the characterization of Hamlet as people might think. And there's another element to that as well. People naturally sympathize with Hamlet and feel that his loss, his grief, his anger all speak to them, as I've said a moment back. But one of the things that at least initially a lot of people are resistant to is the fact that Hamlet, who is focused for most of the play on trying to avenge his father's murder by Claudius, his father's brother, ends by killing more people in the play than Claudius does. So he becomes uncomfortably, disconcertingly like the very person who's the play's villain. So that's another aspect of Hamlet's characterization that people aren't necessarily very aware of at first. But I think your question leads to a further one, which is really why has Hamlet had this sustained impact for so long? I mean, there are so many filmed versions and staged versions Mm -hmm. of Hamlet. It's one of the great stables of uh, the theatre and it's recurrent across uh, the movie world and we see it as close to the heart of the Shakespeare canon as being a, a representative Shakespeare play of Shakespeare at what we think of as his best. Mm. And I don't think we can attribute the enduring popularity and success of the play simply to the fact of Hamlet's complicated characterization and the appeal that Hamlet's anxieties have for us. I think what makes the play, as far as I see it anyway, so successful is that it's not just one kind of play, by which I mean, if you say to someone, well, what kind of play is Hamlet? And they say, well, it's a tragedy. And then you say, okay, fine, it's a tragedy. Yeah, what kind of tragedy? And then they think, well, okay. And so they answer, it's a revenge tragedy. The answer is, of course, both those things are right. But then what follows on is not just what do we mean when we say it's a revenge tragedy, but is it a revenge tragedy only? And I would suggest that the answer to that question is firmly no. It goes back to how we think of Shakespeare. And as I might have mentioned in the talk we had about King Lear, people's responses to Shakespeare, particularly within the uh, academic Shakespeare industry, are often uh, driven by identity politics. Mm. I'm not so much interested in the identity politics of Shakespeare because I'm not persuaded that I need to look at Shakespeare and can only be interested in Shakespeare if I can see my own face looking back at me from the plays. <laughs> so identity politics that way doesn't mean anything to me, and it wouldn't to a lot of other people. For a lot of Shakespeare's readers, Shakespeare has to be an atheist, a Catholic, a working-class hero, a proto-feminist, a conservative... Gay. What, yeah, gay, not gay, uh, 
bisexual, whatever you happen to need him to be. For a lot of people, he doesn't. And I don't really care about uh, finding ways in which I personally can relate to Shakespeare. But I think what interests me is about Shakespeare's career insofar as we know about that. Shakespeare's very pragmatic mm. in the sense that Shakespeare isn't one thing. He's a lot of things at once. He's a writer, he's a director, he's a producer, he's an actor, he's a businessman. So he writes about things that he's interested in writing about, presumably, but he's interested in writing about things certainly that will be financially successful in the unstable and competitive world of Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre. He's a person who wants to make money, and we know he wants to make money because he's a, a property investor, he's a money lender, uh, and, and not in a big way, but in a certainly inner way. And he's a person who retires wealthy when uh, most people around him who are professional writers can't do that. Very few indeed. He's a good S businessman. He's a good businessman, yeah. and he always means to be. Mm. So when he comes in from the country and gets into the theatre business, clearly it's because he wants to be in the world of the theatre. And clearly he's happy moving in the circles of theatrical people who all tended to live pretty close to one another in London because apart from anything else, they all worked together and needed one another's support. Mm. They acted in one another's plays and helped one another write plays and so on. But Shakespeare, as a, as a person who needs to be a success, has to write things that will please audiences because that's the only way that he's going to be a success. So... My point here is that Shakespeare has a strong sense of pragmatism, as I see it, and this connects with Hamlet in as much as I think Shakespeare brings together different tragic forms in order to create a kind of hybrid tragedy, a composite tragedy, where different tragic forms converge to create the maximal kind of impact on an audience. So, for example, if we think about uh, forms of tragedy that are popular in Shakespeare's time, one of the first would be tyrant tragedy. Mm. I mean, we've got people, as we were saying in relation to King Lear, living in a world of absolute rulers. So they're very interested in exploring in literature the possibilities for living in a world of absolute rulers and what the highs and the lows and the survival mechanisms and the ways of escape can be in that kind of environment. And tyrant tragedy is certainly tied up with this. What happens when the sole ruler is a terrible figure who lives in defiance of the law but who manages to keep control over the state? What does this kind of person do? What can we expect from this kind of government? How can we cope with it? How do we make sense of it? How can we escape from it? Well, Claudius, you see, is a tyrant figure. Uh, when people want to understand the t figure of the tyrant in Shakespeare's world, they go back to a number of sources. They go back to the Bible, for example, and they look at King Herod. And they also go back to classical literature naturally, and they go back to Plato's Republic. Mm -hmm. And in the Republic, they take a look at the figure of the character of the tyrant as described by Plato, which is very influential for them, Plato naturally is a great authority figure in the world of learning. And Plato says, for example, the tyrant is a person who, when he first comes to power, takes great pains to seem agreeable and pleasant and to be interested in people and wanting to get on with people. 
but the tyrant is a, a predator. He preys on people because he needs to gratify his own, not merely will to power, but his own appetites, his desire to have more and to have more at the expense of more people, whether that more is sexual or material gain and cons consumption of luxuries, whether it's uh, par partying like there's no tomorrow and no end to the possibility of partying, or whether he's interested in cruelty, whatever it is, uh, the, the tyrant is a predator, but he needs to conceal his predatoriness from his fellows and look like a reasonable, civilised figure who's interested in observing the rule of law. And so, therefore, he's an actor. He's a person who keeps up the facade of being a reasonable person interested in the rule of law, whereas he's not. He's a predator. But insofar as he's a predator, he's not only a victimizer, he's a victim because he's the victim of his own desires, which are out of control. Mm -hmm. And so his acting means, of course, in part that he has to disguise his own victim status and appear like someone who isn't the victim of anything and who doesn't want to victimize anyone. So there's that kind of uh, interest in the role of the tyrant. And all of that can be fleshed out with the characterization of Claudius. Claudius is said by Hamlet, who exaggerates it, but nonetheless there's truth in it, a person who loves to gratify his appetites. He's a person who is an accomplished actor. He's a very skilled politician. He, when first he appears on stage, has a long speech in which he shows his control of other people, his ability to manufacture consensus, to create artificial consensus. And he's a person who, in line with Plato's thinking, which is another element of Plato's characterization of the tyrant, manages to conceal his fears and anxieties because the tyrant is an illegitimate ruler. He comes to power illegitimately. His will to power is illicit. And therefore, he's always afraid of someone else exercising the will to power against him and overthrowing him. And we see this in Claudius when Laertes breaks into the... Uh, presence uh, chamber and threatens Claudius, Claudius doesn't call out to his uh, courtiers to defend him or his friends to defend him or his fellow citizens to defend him, his subjects. He calls on his Swiss mercenaries. So he's got a Swiss bodyguard of people who owe their loyalty to him because he pays them. Mm. So that shows Claudius's anxiety. So Claudius is a means of looking at the figure of the tyrant. I'm wondering too here, sorry yeah. to interrupt. No, go for it. Is there a parallel with Claudius and Henry VIII? Yeah, there are, well. Because he marries his brother's wife. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, that, that's right. And mm. I think in that sense there has to be. But mm. uh, people are very careful to tread round the figure of Henry VIII. Mm at least publicly, when Walter Raleigh writes his history of the world when he's in prison uh, in the Tower, he writes very disparagingly about Henry VIII, but at that time he's writing something that isn't necessarily ever going to see the light of day through the press. He's writing for himself and his co-authors of the history, and he's expressing his own views, which are very negative. Mm. Um, when Thomas Deloney is writing uh, Jack of Newbury, which is a, uh, a fantasy rags to riches uh, fable, kind of connected with the story of Dick Whittington, and he's talking about Henry VIII, 
He doesn't say Henry VIII, the obese, uh, psychopathic, syphilitic. Uh, he talks about the wonderful Henry VIII, that master of good government and that uh, icon of l lawful rule and uh, celebrates the king in ways which are obviously disingenuous but are clearly the ways which have to be used to describe him. Mm. So uh, Claudius Sissi is, is a tyrant tragedy. Uh, Hamlet's father is caught up with another kind of tragedy, the, the most famous kind of tragedy probably in Shakespeare's time, which is the fall from high estate tragedy, which in the two Latin words, which are the kind of label for this, are de casibus, two words, D-E-C-A-S-I-B-U-S, -E and it means literally fall from high estate. And this is Hamlet's father, um, the person of power, authority, the military hero, who suddenly is cast down for... Uh, no foreseeable reason and suddenly finds himself cast down from glory into degradation and humiliation, losing his life not heroically in combat, not gloriously as a martial figure, but ignominiously disfigured and deformed through the assault in secret by his brother who pours poison into his ear. And then, of course, there's Hamlet's tragedy, which is a revenge tragedy. And the revenger is a person whose uh, tragedy is that he's caught up in an environment where an outrage is done to him and to his own, his family, and he wants justice but can't get it because usually justice is either corrupt or the criminal is the person in his world who has acted outrageously and unjustly against him and his family. So therefore, the only resort of the revenger, the outraged person, is to become a revenger, to go into disguise because he's known to everyone, so to take on a disguise, to become a revenger, but to become a revenger means to become a criminal, to go outside the law, to become an outlaw, and therefore to become like the very person he hates and against whom he seeks retribution. Mm. So for Hamlet, this means coming back from university where he's had a humanist education, uh, a thoughtful person stepping into an environment which is geographically the same as when he left it, but a social and familial environment which is now alien, finding himself an outsider in a familiar world, so the world is both defamiliarized and uh, commonplacely familiar at the same time, and then finding that he has to take on a new sense of self, step out of being uh, the the person who's a humanist scholar, mm. a reflective person, coming back to seeing himself as someone who has to step outside the law and wreak havoc through violence. So th there are three tragic forms which come together. So is could you kind of make the um, the parallel, I suppose, of like Hamlet becoming more of, a, of an early modern, a renaissance man, I suppose, and um, stepping back into that kind of medieval world of revenge? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, the revenge code is something that's um, that certainly goes back mm. um, through the medieval world into the into the Roman world, mm. and uh, therefore Hamlet is stepping back in a sense into the tradition of that, but at the same time, revenge is a common social phenomenon in Shakespeare's time, and it's tied up with the code of honor where honour is... I guess the idea is that 
it, if you're talking about who someone is in relation to the idea of honour, then what that means is that honour isn't your sense of what you are and who you are at your best, so it's not an internal thing. Honour is an external thing. It's the degree to which, the extent to which people honour you, mm. pay you respect. So when the honour code is violated, what that means for a man in a male-dominated world is that other people are taking away your respect and diminishing who you are in the eyes of society. So the revenge code is tied to the honour code mm. and it's a very common social phenomenon and, and very problematic social phenomenon obviously in Shakespeare's world because on the one hand it exists as a social practice and is held up as a proper thing for a man to engage in when he's had some perceived slight committed against him but on the other hand it's illegal because you end up generally... Murdering a lot of people. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Well, this is right. I mean, as in my favourite example is Cellini's autobiography. Cellini's a, uh, a sculptor and goldsmith. He's a very heavily built man. He's living, I can't remember whether it's Florence or Rome. I think it's Florence at the time. And he feels that a Spanish soldier has insulted him. So his public sense of self, his honour has been diminished so he does what you do he goes away and buys a special knife <laughs> and having bought his special knife he then starts lurking around the Spaniard who becomes uneasy because this big guy presumably with a weapon is cruising around him so the Spanish soldier calls on his friends hey stick around me I think I've got I'm being stalked by a, a lunatic with a special uh, knife with a special mm. knife <laughs> so anyway at one point you know, as you do, Cellini thinks, I've had enough, I'm mad as hell, I can't take it anymore. Mm. <laughs> so he launches himself in a street straight at the Spanish soldier. The Spanish soldier's friends see this large, angry man with a knife coming straight at the Spanish guy. They think, I'm out of here. They leave, and uh, Cellini puts the knife through the head of the Spanish soldier, oh, walks away thinking and writing afterwards, my work here is done, didn't that go well? My honour is restored. Okay, that's that's a wrap. And off he goes. So this is this is yeah. very, very much, dangerous world. Isn't it's it? a yeah. dangerous world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, see, the thing with with Hamlet is that he's got to decide whether or not to take on this role. And of course, there are a couple of other tragic modes as well. One of this domestic tragedy, family relationships mm. thrown into disorder and and with disaster following. So that's Gertrude and it's Ophelia. And then there's tragedy of state. When the the body politic, uh, the political unit is under stress and strain and is being subverted, and something is rotten in the state of Denmark, so there's this convergence of five different tragic forms in the one play, and I think it's that convergence that creates the power. But I think there's uh, a further element, which is that uh, the revenge tragedy, which centres on the play's protagonist is itself explored in terms which suggest that revenge as a social practice is ethically incoherent. Now, where, where this ties up in the play is uh, the ghost. I was going to ask you about the ghost. Do we yeah. take the ghost seriously? Yeah, well, yeah. This, is, this is the problem because the play basically starts with people telling us that there's going to be a ghost coming. And get ready, get a ghost ready. is coming yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's right <laughs> and so then the, the ghost turns up and for Shakespeare's audience there's a signal here okay, so this is like 
one of the Roman tragedian Seneca's plays where a ghost turns up to talk about an outrage that's been committed, a wrong that's been done, the consequences of the wrong and the need for restitution. So we know that we're entering very likely the domain of um, uh, political incoherence and revenge. Mm. So when the uh, the ghost turns up and it's established because so many different kinds of people see the ghost and so many different people do see the ghost, that the ghost is real and, and not a figment of anyone's imagination. When the ghost turns up, the ghost looks like Hamlet's father and it talks like Hamlet's father and uh, it tells Hamlet that Hamlet's father was murdered, that this is his spirit, and as we know, and so on. It tells that narrative, but there's a problem. The ghost says that it's come from purgatory, mm-hmm. and purgatory is the state in older-style Catholic theology where souls go to be purged of the stains of their sins that were committed in their lifetimes when they were in the flesh so that they can stand cleaned and renewed in the presence of God. They are fit to enter the presence of God. So a person who's in purgatory is not in hell. A person who's in purgatory is saved, is turned towards God, is waiting for the moment when he or she can leave the experience of purgation and enter paradise. And that's why people prayed for for souls in purgatory to get them out quicker. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 And and mm. this is this is absolutely true. Mm. Um, so Hamlet has come back from Wittenberg, which you know, as everybody comments on, is the great centre of Protestant learning. Mm. He certainly more likely than not to have had a Protestant education in Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Protestant doctrine was that ghosts didn't exist officially, that they were uh, demonic illusions, and this ties in with Hamlet's first words to the ghost when he says, uh, you know, I don't know what you are. You could be a demonic illusion, and then he thinks later this could be some figment uh, of uh, fantasy that the, de- the demon has created, the devil has created, in order to lure me to damnation. But so you've, what have you got? You've got Hamlet coming back from Wittenberg where certainly the official view is ghosts don't exist. Then the ghost turns up. And the ghost's universe isn't Protestant, it's Catholic. It says the afterlife is Catholic, I'm from purgatory. So that then is in flat contradiction with what Hamlet would be expected to have been hearing in the the German world of the University of Wittenberg. And that in itself is creating a contradiction, obviously, but it's not what really matters. What really matters is the ghost says, I have this thing that I want you to do. I'm your father, um, or I'm the spirit of your father. I, in the flesh, was murdered. I was betrayed by my brother, the crime of, of Cain against Abel. I was murdered ignominiously. I was humiliated. I was taken out of the flesh before I was ready. I couldn't repent my sins. I'm suffering in the afterlife, awaiting the day of release into the presence of God, and I want you to go and kill my brother. Well, Hamlet's father is notionally a member of the saved. He's, he's beyond sin. He's a person who can't command anybody. In, it's theologically impossible. For to command them to, 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 to commit murder. A, to commit a murder. Yeah. And so this is a theological. It's, it's not like saying it's unlikely. It's not like saying it's remote. It just can't exist. But in the world of the play, it doesn't exist. So you've got the preliminary contradiction, but you've got the bigger contradiction here. And then there's a third one, which is, so the father who 
is adored by the son, as Hamlet's first soliloquy shows, where Hamlet idolizes his father, talking about him as Hyperion, a sun god, comparing him to Hercules, talking about Claudius as a satyr, a goat man, less than human, so contrasting the more than human father to the less than human uncle. Uh, Hamlet, who is the son who adores the father, who wants to speak with the father who's died while Hamlet has been away at university, who longs to see his father who's distraught because of his death, now he is the figure claiming to be the ghost of his father, telling him to commit a murder, theological impossibility for someone in purgatory, but also to go out, commit a murder, break the commandment against murder, and damn himself by committing a mortal sin. So theoretically, the father is talking to the beloved son who's desperate to re-establish contact with him, desperate uh, with grief, who idolizes, not merely idealizes the father. The spirit of the father is now telling the son who adores him to go out and destroy himself on the father's behalf. So the whole... I, you can read this one of two ways. Either you can blink that and say, well, that just happens. That's just the way it is. Mm. Um, or you can say, okay, for several reasons, this doesn't make any kind of sense. And so what are we supposed to do? And I think the answer is we accept the fact that it can't make sense. Mm. What we accept is the fact that the revenge ethic, which lies at the heart of the tragedies accumulated in the play, converging in the play, is shown to be full of contradictions, full of contrarieties, beyond resolution. And so when Hamlet says, I'll call thee Hamlet, father, royal Dane, makes a leap of faith and accepts that the ghost, who could be anything or anyone, is in fact his father, and then commits himself to accepting the father's command for revenge... Uh, when Hamlet does that, he's committing himself to the role of revenger, which is a role that cannot make any sense, which is incoherent, and which then it is virtually impossible for him, in good faith, as a person who knows right from wrong, to act out. So does this account for, you know, there's a lot of, like, a conversational talk when, you know, colloquial kind of general talk about, about Hamlet as somebody who can't make up his mind. Yeah, right. So, you know, and that that was, I think, what Laurence Olivier said about Hamlet sure. when he was making his film. Does the, the kind of not making up his mindness of Hamlet relate to this kind of ambiguity or confusion or lack of coherence around what's actually happening here with the ghost? Absolutely, I think it does. You see, I think the thing is that it's not just um, something like, oh, Hamlet comes back, he's a, he's a person of ideas, not a person of action, he's so sensitive. Mm. Then someone says pick up a sword, do the manly thing, go kill Claudius. Um, or will I, won't I? It's not that. Mm. Hamlet comes back. He is told his father's been murdered. He says, well, I wonder if this is true. As he tests it, and on the balance of probabilities, it certainly looks as though Claudius is guilty. It seems to be the case. And then subsequently in soliloquy, Claudius confesses that, yes, of course, he's guilty. Mm. So there's no doubt about that. But the point is, as you're saying that Hamlet is now being asked to give up one way of seeing himself and take on a new selfhood, a new personal identity, which is incoherent, which makes no sense. And therefore, even though he knows 
that Claudius is guilty, how can he commit himself to the role of revenger when that role is itself so deeply contaminated that it makes him an outlaw like the man he's supposed to kill? Mm. And I'd add that uh, the idea of Hamlet as being far too sensitive to pick up a sword and act violently is complete nonsense. Mm. You know, uh, Hamlet likes to spar... He trains with the sword. Ophelia says that he likes to work out with the sword and practice. And when Gertrude talks about Hamlet sparring with Laertes and saying, oh, he's fat and scant of breath, that's just mummy talking. Because, in fact, Hamlet is like his father in a number of ways. Hamlet's father is a very violent man. You know, Horatio says, so I saw him once when an angry parl or parley, depending on your text, he smote the sledded Polack on the ice and uh, he turns up in a suit of armour. He's a warrior hero. Well, Hamlet is not above violence and, in fact, has no problem with it. He'll jump into the grave and start throttling Laertes. <laughs> He'll stick a knife into Polonius and think, right, a rat, a rat, dead for a ducat. Oh, yes, you can smell him as you go up the stairs. Mm. Um, he'll pick up a sword and fight, and he's not worried about it. So Hamlet is a person who's quite prepared to be violent but the reasons for becoming violent are deeply contradictory, deeply conflicted, and there's no way that Hamlet can make sense of them. And that, I think, is connected with the idea of delay. Also, I, I just add a point to, to that. If you're going to say Hamlet's a tragedy, what is the Hamlet tragedy for him? You know, if the play is an amalgam of different kinds of tragedy, fine, but what is Hamlet's personal tragedy? And I think that's not that he dies. The end of the play is littered with bodies, as Shakespeare's tragedies so often are. So, you know, uh, death is everybody's tragedy across Shakespeare's tragedies. But for Hamlet, the tragedy is that he has to give up who he really is and become someone he doesn't really want to become. And that's why he says to Horatio at the end of the play, in effect, look, tell people who I really was. People are going to think of me in connection with what's lying around me and bleeding around me now and all the strangeness and madness that's been part of my experience, in fact, through which in part he's disguised who he was. And he wants Horatio to make his real personal identity known to others after his death. He wants to recapture what he's had to give up mm. through his friend. So I think that's the personal tragedy of Hamlet, the way you can connect that with that tragedy of Macbeth, uh, someone who takes on, uh, chooses, isn't forced to, uh, chooses to take on a new personal identity. And this is certainly the same thing with Othello, likewise, someone who takes on a new identity. And, of course, Lear does that when he steps down, when he deposes himself mm. and steps down from the throne. So Hamlet is a man who chooses to become someone else uh, when what he's planning to on becoming or decides to become is incoherent and doesn't make sense and he loses himself in the process and then is desperate to recapture as best he can the man that he was before all the tumult and horror descended on him. That's really interesting. I want to um, talk about another element of the these this mixture of tragedies that, that the Shakespeare puts in there, the Hamlet pie, mm. I suppose. Um, and that's the domestic tragedy with yeah. Gertrude and Ophelia. Um, so, you know, people have been 
have lo- loved to, you know, plop a, a Freudian reading on this play and <laughs> yeah. say that the issue here is that is that Hamlet is, is actually, you know, has this sublimated yeah. desire for, for Gertrude. Right. Um, and hence his kind of very sexual imagery when he talks about his mother and Claudius. What would you say about those readings? Well, I mean, that goes back to Ernest Jones in the 1920s, I think I'm right in saying. Uh, certainly to Ernest Jones, but I, I think in the 1920s. And... Uh, it, it belongs to the days when people thought, first, that psychology, that is, Freudian psychology was a science, and B, that you could map out humanity in terms of Freud's uh, characterizations of, of people uh, with their neuroses and psychoses. Um, it's interesting, when you get the, uh, the Ern Malley hoax in Australian literature, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the guy who was... Uh, the editor of Angry Penguins, the magazine in which the fake poems were published, writes to the the British uh, critic and and poet, uh, a literary celebrity in his day called Herbert Reed, and asks him for his take on um, on on the people who or the person who uh, would have perpetrated this. And of course, it was two people, Macaulay and Stewart. Mm. But anyway. Um, Herbert Reed writes back saying, well, it's hard for me to evaluate that because I don't know the, the person's psychological type. So, in other words, if I could get to know this person and see his or their psychological type or types, then we'd be able to get this in perspective properly and know it. So, Ernest Jones's critique of Hamlet is really how does early 20th century psychology as a, a kind of mm. form of belated Austrian imperialism manage to make sense of a famous play and provide a, a solution. And uh, I, th- I think really two things about that. I think on the one hand it tells you about the mindset of some people in the early 20th century <laughs> and and their need to believe that you could discuss the workings of consciousness in scientifically identifiable ways which would all but exhaust the possibilities for analysing how the human mind works. So I think that. But second, I don't think it actually tells us anything about the play because Hamlet's sexual disgust at Gertrude's wallowing in the nasty sty, as he puts it, with Claudius, has to do not so much with his desire clearly to be in bed with his mother, whom he now sees as in bed with the goat man, the satyr, who is Claudius, you know, Hyperion to a satyr, in his own words from the first soliloquy. But it's got everything to do with the idolization of his father. Mm-hmm. This woman was in bed with my father, who was like Hercules, who was like the sun god, you know, the source of light and life and order in Hamlet's world, central to his world. And that figure's gone. The center's gone from his world. And the woman who was the consort of the sun king is now the mate of the goat man. And Hamlet can't forgive that because he sees that as a family betrayal. That's what I think the the domestic tragedy is largely tied up with. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also part of the domestic tragedy thing is Ophelia, I think, Yeah, as well. I was wa- wanting to know if you could comment a bit on Ophelia and how she's characterised. Well... Yeah, I think Ophelia is a couple of things. One of the things is it's interesting that when Laertes is about to head off to to France, he has a a farewell talk with Ophelia, 
And it's clear that he's very fond of her from what he says, that brother and sister are on good terms, that they're close. And he offers her some advice in a brotherly way about her relationship with Hamlet. And he's basically saying to her, look, I know Hamlet's interested in you and I know you're fond of Hamlet, but you don't want to make a mistake with Hamlet. You don't want actually to have sex with him. And his actual words are, nor your chaste treasure open, where treasure is a kind of vaginal illusion. And what you realise there is that he's worried about his sister having sex with Hamlet because that will be such a loss to her as someone who has status in her own right because then she'll just be the lover of the prince she won't be a woman uh, who has, has her own independent standing in in her family and the community the small courtly world of Elsinore but also because she's a family resource mm. uh, she's someone who is supposed to marry the right person for her own well-being and the advantage of the family and if she has sex with Hamlet who cannot marry her then she will lose her value as a social commodity. So I think from Laertes' point of view, uh, his, what I'm going to crudely call commodification of his sister, even though he's, he's not doing that in uh, uh, a sense which is in any way hostile or meant to be demeaning, is, is a problem. Mm. Uh, because he's telling her, your emotions in this don't matter. You, there are larger considerations which uh, have to do with social advantage, with with status, with money and so on. But more brutal is, of course, Hamlet's treatment of her, partly because he suspects that she's betrayed him and is working with his uncle and her father to take advantage of him. But also, I think, because he's prepared to except that she's betrayed him without thinking what other courses of action were open to her. And that's really the same with his treatment of his mother. Mm. What Hamlet refuses to do is think, what was it like to be my mother when my father was taken out of her life? And he never stops to think, what options were open to Ophelia when Claudius and her father said, in effect, now, girl, we want you to behave in this way towards Hamlet. So all he can see is himself. And his self-absorption is well portrayed in, in the first soliloquy, where he is by himself mapping out his world for his own satisfaction. And he uses all those mythological illusions that I was talking about, uh, the satyr for Claudius, Niobe for his mother, uh, Hyperion and Hercules for his father. So he's drawing on the elements of his, his education and he's using them to map out his world. And it's a map of misrepresentation, a map of misreading. And Hamlet's very prone to misread his world to make himself feel better. And being angry with Ophelia, I suspect, is one of the ways in which he might make himself feel better. But in any case, be that as it may, there's certainly a profound sense of grief upon grief when he gets a sense that Ophelia has acted against him. And the way that he treats her in relation to her father is, of course, 
very unpleasant. I mean, he murders her father and shows no sense of awareness of how she might feel about having lost her father, given that he has not long before lost his own. So it's a real lack of um, empathy. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a real lack of humanity yeah. there. And uh, I think right at the start of the play, Hamlet is a person who's dehumanised by grief, but he's also a person who goes on to dehumanise himself by taking on the revenge code. Mm. And there's a, a desperate attempt, as I've been suggesting, to recapture something of his original self at the play's end. But he's lost a lot uh, as he goes through the play. Mostly people don't like to hear that. But when you start to count up the bodies, in the course of the play, Hamlet has caused more deaths than Claudius. Mm. And... Hamlet really is a person who's gone from pretending mad to being at times as crazed as he perhaps pretends to be. So there, he wavers between, at different points in the play, between sanity and insanity, between uh, defending himself and brutally uh, exercising violence against other people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, his ability to write off Polonius is appalling. And that so sits really oddly with our vision of him as this kind of sensitive... Oh, yeah, you know. yeah, the noble prince too sensitive for this world. Yeah. That's right. I mean, Hamlet's life is distorted by grief. Mm. And so he's a person who's then literally, in a, in a sense, deranged... He can't be what he was before the death of his father and before he learnt that his uncle had murdered his father. But the course of action he commits himself to tends increasingly to dehumanise him mm. and something that he's intermittently aware of. You know, I could sit here and talk about Hamlet for another eight 10 hours (laughs) would probably you know as long as the play goes on because it is quite a long play but we have completely run out of time okay thank you so much tony that was absolutely fascinating i was just sort of sitting here being quiet so you could talk as much as possible oh well (laughs) hey look yeah sorry i I, no no it was great it was fantastic i didn't want to interrupt oh okay well thank you very much (laughs) um so thank you very much tony this has been another episode of from the lighthouse if you could please rate and review us on apple um, Podcasts, that would be very very helpful And we'll see you again in a week. Thank you. Bye.